Good morning, everyone. I think let's get started. It's my pleasure to welcome you all to today's Region 4 Project Echo Session from the Emory University Series Communicable Diseases Program, run in conjunction with the Southern Regional Disaster Response System and the National Emerging Special Pathogens Training and Education Center. My name is Gavin Harris. I'm an infectious diseases and critical care physician here at Emory, and I will be your host for today. Before we begin, please know that we will be recording this session and your data while used for informative purposes will be kept confidential. For those unfamiliar, ECHO is an acronym standing for Extension for Community Healthcare Outcomes founded by the University of New Mexico. It's designed to disseminate and amplify best practices in a collaborative and interactive manner. And if you're interested in participating in future sessions, please reach out to us. Details will be at the end and on our website. As always, if there are any issues during the webinar, please send us an email or type in the chat. And if you'd like to ask a question during the session, please type it into the Q&A feature. We will do our best to answer questions in real time and we'll discuss as many questions live as we are able. If we do not get to all questions, we will post a recap addressing those topics on our website when the recording to this session is available as a podcast next week. These sessions are accredited for continuing education credits by the AMA and the ANCC. Credit can be obtained for attendance upon completion of a survey at the end of this session. The presenters and the planners of this session have no financial conflicts of interest with ineligible companies to disclose. And here is today's agenda. As always, we will start with the Region 4 SITREP. This will be followed by our case uh, and didactic presentations. And after this, we will have time for a moderated question and answer session. And now it's my honor to introduce our guest for today. First, I would like to welcome Dr. Henry Wu, a distinguished physician and associate professor of medicine in the Division of Infectious Diseases here at Emory University. Dr. Wu is the director of the Emory Travel Well Center, which for those who don't know, serves individuals traveling internationally, both pre and post travel, as well as immigrants and refugees. Dr. Wu has also served as an EIS officer at CDC and medical epidemiologist at the Meningitis and Vaccine Preventable Diseases Branch. Next, I'd like to welcome Dr. Liliana Sanchez-Gonzalez, a medical epidemiologist in the Dengue branch of the Centers for Disease Control based in Puerto Rico and also coming live to us from there. Dr. Sanchez-Gonzalez has had extensive field experience and has participated in the response to global outbreaks of Dengue, measles, and COVID-19, and currently leads several research and surveillance projects for mosquito-borne diseases in Puerto Rico. Lastly, I'd like to welcome back Dr. Cherie Drenzik, the State Epidemiologist and Chief Science Officer for the Georgia Department of Public Health. A veterinarian by training, Dr. Drenzik has served in many prior roles at the Georgia Department of Public Health, as well as Assistant Professor of Epidemiology at the University of Georgia College of Veterinary Medicine. Lastly, Dr. Drenzik led Georgia Department of Public Health's epidemiologic response to the COVID-19 pandemic. Welcome to you all. And to place this session in context, the Emory University Serious Communicable Diseases Program in conjunction with the SRDRS puts together situation reports on special pathogens of concern for our region, HHS Region 4. These SITREPs are typically published on our website, social media channels, Emory Department of Medicine YouTube channel, and listservs. And here is the current HHS Region 4 Special Pathogen SITREP. First, the Lassa fever outbreak in Nigeria continues to abate. Our last SITREP one month prior containing data from the 17th of September from the Nigeria CDC noted 1,068 confirmed cases with 188 deaths. Since then, there have been 27 new confirmed cases with seven new deaths, 
which equates to a case fatality rate of 17.2%. Unfortunately, one new healthcare worker was also infected. We expect the outbreak, given the seasonal variation in the disease, to continue a downward trend. Next, to India, where the Nipah virus outbreak has subsided as well. Ultimately, there were six confirmed cases and two deaths. It was the fourth outbreak of the virus in the past five years, and infections likely spread not only through the consumption of contaminated raw date palm sap, but also was transmitted from human to human among close contacts. Next, to Pakistan, where as of the 11th of November, there have been over 60 patients with 15 deaths attributed to Crimean Congo hemorrhagic fever virus in the northeast city of Quetta since mid-October. Of additional concern, over 20 healthcare workers have been infected with one physician death, raising alerts about nosocomial transmission. The remoteness of the city and variable weather conditions have also hampered efforts for the transfer of critically ill patients to southern Karachi. Now to Southeast Asia, where on November 23rd and 25th, the Cambodian Health Ministry announced the confirmation of two new severe human H5N1 avian influenza infections, increasing the country's total to six since the beginning of this year. On October 5th, two fatal human cases of H5N1 had been confirmed in Cambodia, both of an older clade of the virus that has been circulating in the country for the past decade. Both new cases are in young women, one of whom was in close proximity to dead chickens at home and unfortunately has died. The second case, a young girl lives next door to the first patient and became sick after holding a dead chicken. She remains critically ill and in intensive care. Analysis has, de has determined both infections are also of the older circulating clade. It is also worth noting that while three of the previous four cases this year were fatal, this does not indicate a broader outbreak of human-to-human -human transmission, and current risk to the U.S. public is low. Lastly, there have been no reports of other suspected or confirmed patients with special pathogens of concern in Region 4 at this time. For more resources, visit us on the web at scdu.emory.edu. And now, as always, before we delve into the main topic at hand, I wanted to first pose some interactive poll questions to our audience to gaze our, gauge our base comfort level with this topic. They are up on the screen. The first question, how knowledgeable do you feel about the current state of dengue fever in the Western Hemisphere on a scale of not at all knowledgeable to extremely knowledgeable? And the second question, how comfortable do you feel regarding the appropriate clinical management of a patient with suspected or confirmed dengue fever? Again, on a scale of not at all comfortable to extremely comfortable. If the audience could please vote now. All right, and if we could get the results up on the screen, please. So for the first question, we it seems that our uh, presenters have their work cut out for them. We have uh, a significant range from not at all knowledgeable to extremely knowledgeable, which is fantastic. And also in terms of the clinical management, we uh, have excellent opportunities for learning here today. So hopefully we can fill in some of these gaps. And with that, I am going to turn it over to Dr. Wu. Great, thank you, Gavin. Thank you uh, everyone for tuning in. Uh, let me just share my screen. Okay, um, does that look good for everyone? All right, we can see it. Excellent, thank you very much. All right, um, and thank you for that kind introduction. I'm happy to share uh, uh, one of the cases uh, we've seen, uh, which is in many ways representative of, of, of uh, the travel-related infections that we see in our clinic. Um,
So this is a 32-year-old healthy male uh, who returned from Costa Rica. He had been there on vacation for about eight days. Uh, he was doing a lot of outdoor activities, including hiking, surfing. He jumped off a waterfall into a freshwater body of water. Uh, he had fairly rustic uh, accommodations. He described a hotel with concrete floors and log walls. He did not have animal contact. He thinks he had insect bites, mainly because he found a lot of richy, itchy red bumps on his legs. Uh, he did see what he thought was a, quote, kissing bug in his bed, which he knew enough about that they may pass an infection. So that actually was one of his main concerns um, when he started not to feel well. Uh, he did not get any pre-travel vaccinations or advice. Uh, he was otherwise uh, fairly healthy, just a history of asthma and no HIV risk factors. Uh, basically, he was well until the end of his trip. On the day before his return, he had sudden onset of fevers and body aches. Uh, he described headaches, uh, pain behind his eyes, back aches and joint aches. Uh, he measured fevers as high as 102.6 Fahrenheit in the first day or two. He also complained of a pretty severe burning in his hands and feet. Uh, he was extremely fatigued and he started to develop a red rash on his trunk. He also noted some loose bowel movements and a slight cough, uh, feeling like a, he had a tickle in his throat. So he returned, he was able to return back and uh, on his third day of illness, he went to an urgent care clinic. Um, um, not entirely clear uh, uh, what was uh, the, the thinking there, but uh, it's clearly they did not think uh, any uh, arboviral or tropical diseases. They gave him azithromycin and uh, sent him out. That did not help. So on the fourth day of illness, uh, he presented to the ED uh, with persistent illness. He had been taking a, a lot of acetaminophen that, that seemed to help his temperatures, uh, but on presentation, he had a, a fairly high fever. Um, they noted a lot of erythematous macules on his extremities. His blood tests showed some hyponatremia, some low platelet count, and most notably a low white count with a normal differential and a platelet count that was low at 79. Uh, they did some, uh, some, um, some blood tests, including blood cultures and a dengue serology. He had a normal x-ray. And I'll give credit uh, to the ED. Uh, their, their assessment plan uh, covered a, a differential pretty well. And they, clearly, they were thinking of tropical diseases and thinking of his travel. Uh, they had concern for rickettsial infection, uh, given his uh, CBC, but they did uh, consider malaria, dengue fever, and even Chagas disease, I think, because of the kissing bug report. Uh, but notably, uh, they gave him empiric uh, doxycycline for the rickettsial uh, possibility and referred them to our clinic uh, for follow-up. So I saw him uh, the following day on the fifth day of illness. Uh, at this point, he looked extremely fatigued. Um, uh, but otherwise, um, um, not extremely ill. He had a low-grade uh, fever at uh, 37.9 uh, Celsius. Um, he basically had some enlarged lymph nodes in his axilla and inguinal regions. His chest and lungs uh, and heart were normal. He had mild right upper quadrant tenderness. I did not uh, uh, feel a, a liver um, um, in particular, but uh, no joint swelling or edema. And most notably, really on exam, is his uh, his skin. Uh, now, uh, that first photo is of his chest. Uh, you may or may not appreciate, but he has a faint uh, erythematous, uh, sort of diffuse, uh, uh, patchy uh, rash on his chest. Uh, it extends around his back. The second photo, uh, you can see his handprint. That's uh, I asked him to press his hand against his back, and you can see that it's blanching. He did have uh, numerous uh, uh, erythematous uh, macules on his uh, ankles. He had no petechia, he had no signs of, uh, of bleeding. 
And uh, so obviously um, uh, we were thinking of many things, but this fit a narval viral infection, particularly dengue quite well. Um, we thought most likely uncomplicated dengue. Um, he did not have any overt warning signs of, 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 of severe dengue, such as bleeding or fluid accumulation, vomiting, et cetera. Um, his, his platelet count appeared to be stable. Uh, we did consider other things like leptospirosis, given his freshwater contact. Um, at this point in uh, Costa Rica, malaria was not known to be endemic in the uh, parts of uh, Costa Rica he had traveled to. So um, we considered that, but did not think it was likely. We certainly always consider other things, including rickettsial infections and uh, things like acute HIV and other viral syndromes. Uh, he looked uh, uh, well enough to go home, but we uh, advised we would watch him closely, um, monitor for danger signs. Uh, we asked him to avoid um, NSAIDs. Um, uh, given the possibility of dengue and his low platelet count, we scheduled follow-up in 24 hours to repeat testing, and um, and uh, and that was our plan uh, after the initial visit. So um, the next day, uh, basically he felt better, but he did notice increased redness of his hands and arms. His he felt like his hands were mildly swollen. Uh, his fevers uh, were down. Um, uh, we. We also, uh, on the following day after that, he, he actually paged me because he, he, was, he had a home uh, pulse ox machine, which uh, uh, he noticed that his heart rate was, uh, was wildly fluctuating. Um, he also had some lightheadedness and shortness of breath. Obviously, these are, these are concerning complaints. And so I advised him to go to the ED. Um, actually, he was uh, fairly far from clinic. He lived uh, at least a couple hours away, I think. So um, otherwise, we would have had him come straight to us. But uh, uh, he basically did not want to leave his house. Uh, fortunately, um, he remained stable, um, and he just reported uh, he got better over the next few days. And by uh, the 15th day of illness, he only reported some mild fatigue. Uh, this is a summary of his lab tests. Uh, that first uh, column in the uh, table is his ED uh, lab tests. And then the, the second one on day five is the first day he came to clinic, as you can see. Uh, his AST and ALT, his uh, liver function enzymes were increasing, and they increased on the next day, on, on, on day six, uh, to, to moderate amounts. His uh, white count stayed low, and his platelet count was stayed low, but relatively stable. Uh, the dengue serologies done in the ED um, were negative. Uh, his initial workup for other infections were also largely negative. Uh, day 14, two weeks um, um, after the illness started, uh, we repeated the testing, which showed normalization of his general blood tests, as well as a positive dengue IgG and IgM, affirming the, uh, the infection. So uh, uh, some quick lessons. Obviously, whenever you see uh, uh, travelers, we need to consider a broad differential diagnosis, not only of tropical infections, but things that can affect anyone anywhere. And this is, of course, the challenge of travel medicine. Um, it is uh, clear in this case, and it's quite common, that misdiagnosis or even no consideration of travel-related infections are common in frontline healthcare settings in the U.S. And finally, uh, in the broader uh, scheme of things, obviously, uh, post-pandemic travel is going uh, um, up, and I'm sure we'll hear more uh, from my colleagues. Uh, and we are seeing a lots in our clinic of, of dengue in the past year from all parts of the world, including uh, uh, Asia and Africa, as well as Latin America. Um, and that's my last slide. So thank you very much. Um, Thanks so much, Dr. Wu. And while we're getting set up for our next presentation, we are going to be turning it over to Dr. Sherry Drenzik from the Georgia Department of Public Health. While we're getting that presentation online, Dr. Wu, I just wanted to highlight the second point that you made about misdiagnose, misdiagnosis of travel-related infections is a, a huge problem, which we're going to hopefully help with that here this session and in other several sessions of 
uh, illnesses that we have done. So with that, thank you for that fantastic presentation. And Dr. Drenzik, I see you've started sharing your screen. And excellent. We are able to, uh, to see your screen and we can see you as well. Uh, thank you. Thanks so much uh, for the kind introduction. Um, what I would like to cover in my uh, brief presentation uh, this morning as well is to talk a little bit about dengue fever surveillance uh, from a state health department perspective. And again, um, how we at the state health department find out about cases such as the one Dr. Wu presented and why it's important that we find out about these cases. Um, so dengue um, and other acute arboviral infections are um, notifiable conditions, both nationally and in Georgia. Uh, we in Georgia uh, use the 2015 CSTE case definition um, as is, is true of the nation as a whole. So what that means is that by law, uh, physicians and laboratories uh, need to report um, dengue uh, diagnoses, uh, lab-confirmed diagnoses to us at the state health department through a variety of, of means. Um, and why it's really important for us to hear about these cases um, besides just tracking for trends is that, you know, for example, here in Georgia, um, many Southern states, some Western states as well, some of the warmer states, we do have dengue competent mosquito um, populations or vectors here, uh, primarily the Aedes mosquitoes. Um, so again, dengue is, and you'll hear more about this, um, transmitted by Aedes aegypti uh, and Elbopictus primarily. We have them in Georgia, um, although even though we have uh, competent mosquito populations, we really don't see uh, locally acquired or locally transmitted dengue infections in Georgia, nor really in the US mainland at all. It's really very rare. Um, uh, of course, um, dengue is endemic in some of the US territories such as Puerto Rico and American Samoa and US Virgin Islands, but on the mainland US, uh, really, um, the states that uh, most commonly see what we call locally acquired or locally transmitted dengue, you know, include primarily Florida, um, but we've also seen it in Texas, uh, Arizona, and, and even, you know, rarely this year we saw a, a locally acquired case in California. What we do see epidemiologically when we look at the um, dengue infections in the U.S. is that Although local transmission is rare, travel-associated infections are extremely common. Most dengue cases that are seen clinically, such as the one that Dr. Wu presented, are travel-associated from areas where um, dengue is endemic. Um, as a matter of fact, for us in Georgia, we have really never documented a locally acquired case of dengue. We um, All of ours have been uh, travel associated that we've seen um, over the past um, years. 
And in fact, travel cases indeed are rising. Um, as Dr. Wu mentioned in his presentation, uh, for a variety of reasons and a variety of factors contribute to this. Travel is increasing, of course. Um, there are, you know, climate changes that, that can um, promote some changes in, in um, mosquito populations in areas of endemicity. Um, but we really, we are seeing some increasing cases. And I'm going to show you in a minute that some of this, I think, is surveillance related for us as well. But the bottom line really is, is that for us at the state health department, um, and you know, as a national and the national picture as well, the primary concern is that people who contract dengue um, from travel, uh, where wherever they may acquire it, such as in Costa Rica, in the case we just saw, the risk is is that if we have competent, you know, mosquito vectors here, uh, there is a a risk, maybe at low, but there is a risk that um, people can introduce the dengue flavivirus to uh, local mosquito populations here. So we're certainly, you know, it's, it's a different type of travel infection in the sense that we're not worried about person to person transmission once the traveler arrives here in Georgia, but we're worried about person to local mosquito transmission, which indeed can then result in uh, further um, transmission to people. So that's the primary concern and the primary reason why we conduct um, uh, dengue surveillance, you know, kind of, and, and are most concerned about it uh, at the state health department level and consider it to be, you know, sort of a, an urgent uh, type of response when we hear about a case. So, one of the things I would like to give you a snapshot of of dengue surveillance in Georgia um, since 2015, and and you can look at the magnitude of these numbers, and you realize that we really have very few cases. Um, and again, remember these are travel related. So, but I wanted to to sort of um, and highlight the importance of kind of surveillance context, um, and really. Um, if you look at in a couple of areas here, if you look at 2016, we had 28 um, dengue travel associated cases reported in Georgia. This is directly related um, uh, to the Zika outbreak uh, that was going on globally at the time. Uh, really, I and that was the um, point in time when individuals with appropriate travel history and appropriate uh, consistent clinical uh, uh, pictures were tested for both dengue and Zika, um, according to recommendations. And prior to that, I think there was really kind of limited dengue testing um, and awareness, you know, sort of Zika brought it to the forefront and then actually um, increased the number of dengue cases um, that were um, confirmed. It doesn't mean they didn't exist prior to that. They just, again, were, were likely not captured. And then if you look again at 2020, 2021 in Georgia, we have none, no, zero, no dengue cases at all, you know, kind of during the early part of the pandemic, uh, no travel, uh, individuals weren't um, traveling at all. So again, um, the consideration of um, travelers returning from these endemic areas, you know, what was not a, a, a driving force. And we had basically didn't even detect any cases at all. But then as the pandemic continued and we look at, at even 2023, so this year we have a higher, you know, higher number than we have in many, many years, 17 cases already this year. 
travel has increased, that's for sure. And one other thing that I wanted to point out that that uh, is a you know surveillance context is at, during the course of the pandemic, um, state health departments increased capacity greatly to receive electronic laboratory reporting. And we received many, many more um, electronic lab reports and um, um, individuals that were tested had, you know, kind of the ability to have this, these electronic diagnoses, you know, submitted to us um, instantly. And so I think that it, that the surveillance um, system in and of itself improved and is much more robust. So we're capturing more cases that may have existed as well, which is a good thing. So that's, you know, sort of con context, but it also leads us to think about surveillance improvements and why it's important. So let me uh, talk a little bit about that. So improved and robust dengue surveillance um, in states is really the foundation for prevention and control. And um, so as we saw with surveillance during the, the Zika outbreak and during the COVID pandemic, um, we really are likely not capturing all dengue cases um, that are being diagnosed in the U.S. Um, and having the ability to uh, capture these cases and do robust surveillance is key. You know, certainly it improves our ability to inform um, clinical treatment, but it also, uh, again, is the foundation for preventing local transmission in the U.S. or in areas that have these competent vectors. So the improvements really um, to continue to increase um, the robust nature of, of dengue surveillance in the U.S. Um, is really increased awareness and testing of travelers. Uh, particularly from areas uh, where dengue is endemic, uh, recognition and ability to test and realizing that we have increased um, electronic laboratory reporting of cases. We receive um, these case reports in a much more timely way. Um, essentially, as soon as they're diagnosed, you know, we receive these reports every, you know, every night, every 24 hours. And that allows us to have increased opportunities to, you know, note that there is a case, investigate the case earlier, um, detect any local trans potential uh, local transmission or outbreaks earlier, and, you know, advise these case patients um, about, um, you know, avoidance of mosquitoes, avoidance of mosquito bites, you know, during the time, you know, the uh, follow uh, during the time of their illness, uh, to prevent uh, the potential for local transmission. And ultimately, it really allows us all um, as a state and as a nation to have more accurate data that really more accurately reflect trends, you know, clearly um, in the last 10 years where we really weren't testing and capturing uh, really the true magnitude and scope of dengue, um, you know, in a given state or in, a, in the nation as a whole. And I'll stop there. I think that's my last slide. And I um, uh, am happy to answer questions later on um, after our next presentation. Thank you so much, as always, Dr. Drenzik. And now we're going to turn it over to Dr. Sanchez Gonzalez for a discussion of the clinical management and some other aspects of uh, dengue. Thank you, Dr. Harris. Let me share my screen. I... That's okay. Just a reminder to the audience as well, if you do have a question or an issue, please let us know by typing it into the Q&A feature. 
as well, or as the, uh, the, the chat feature. We're gonna do our best to answer as many questions live as we are able. And all right, Dr. Sanchez Gonzalez, we can see your presentation. Thank you so much for the introduction and for the invitation today. I will now talk a little bit more about dengue diagnosis and dengue clinical management. So I'll start with my required disclaimer that these are my uh, own uh, conclusions and uh, findings. And um, I'll start with some basic concepts for dengue that some of them are already covered, but we'll remind them to be all in the same page. There are four different dengue viruses. All of them can cause dengue and all of them can cause severe disease. If someone gets, inf gets infected with one serotype, as we call the different viruses, they will get lifelong immunity to that same serotype. So if I get infected with dengue one, I will then be immune uh, to dengue one for my lifetime. And then there is also a short-term immunity period against the other types when I'm infected. So if I got infected with dengue one, I will be um, uh, immune for about six months to two years to the other three serotypes. After that, that immunity goes away and I'm again susceptible to the other three serotypes. And in theory, anybody uh, can be infected four times with dengue in their lifetime. As Dr. Drenzek men mentioned, the main uh, route of transmission for dengue is vectorial, is the overwhelming way that we um, get patients infected with dengue. Um, usually is Aedes aegypti, that is the most uh, common vector uh, globally. And um, it's very important to remember always to recommend prevention measures against mosquito bites for our travelers, as this is the main way they can get dengue. There are other routes of transmission that include vertical transmission, sexual transmission has been described, and transmission through blood transfusions and organ transplantations, but these are very rare and are usually not a, a very um, high concern for us in public health. Most dengue infections, infections are asymptomatic. Only about 20 to 25% of people infected with dengue will develop symptoms. And of those with symptoms, more, most of them will have uh, mild cases of dengue, just fever and uh, very uncomfortable uh, symptoms, but nothing more. But the incidence of dengue, as it was mentioned before, continues to increase around the world, and the outbreaks are increasing in frequency and in magnitude. So this makes not surprising that uh, we continue to see dengue as one of the most common causes of fever among returning travelers from Asia and Latin America, the Caribbean. Um, dengue can progress to severe disease and can be fatal, and as we have older and more frequent travelers, there are additional risks uh, for severe disease among our travelers. And we'll talk a little bit more about risk in a minute. Sadly, unrecognized disease is a common cause of death. Even in endemic areas, we do not think about dengue enough and we have fatal cases because we didn't suspect the disease early enough. So early suspicion and then um, our ability to provide a timely and adequate IV fluid replacement therapy can significantly decrease mortality among dengue patients. This has been demonstrated. The clinical classification of dengue was updated by the WHO in 2009, and I'll show you here, any patient who lives in or has traveled to an endemic area with, uh, of dengue within the last 14 days and has fever and any two of the following criteria here, nausea and vomiting, rash, aches and pains, a positive tourniquet test or petechia, or leukopenia meets the case um, 
uh, the probable dengue definition. And Dr. Drensek mentioned that we do have a CSD definition that aligns pretty well with, with uh, this information, but that is the definition that is used for, uh, for the local and state health departments in the U.S. Then if one or more of the signs that are listed in, in here are present, then the patient is classified as dengue with warning signs, and they include, oops, sorry, and they include abdominal pain or tenderness, persistent vomiting, clinical fluid accumulation, mucosal bleeding, that, in, that includes epistaxis, hematuria, gingival bleeding, uh, an altered mental status, postural hypotension, hepatomegaly, and hemoconcentration. Um, oh, I lost, okay. Uh, these warning signs are helpful to identify patients who can progress to severe disease, and it's important that we all assess these uh, signs in all patients in which we suspect dengue. And then for those patients who present with severe plasma leakage, which is the hallmark of severe dengue, that leads to shock or respiratory distress, those who present with severe bleeding, that is usually gastrointestinal bleeding, and those who have severe organ involvement that most commonly presents like hepatitis, encephalitis, or myocarditis, those are classified as severe dengue. And so anytime you have a patient in which you are suspecting, suspecting dengue, you should use these criteria to classify the patient in uh, these uh, three different clinical categories. This will be helpful uh, for the down. I'll show you to determine the treatment um, and the hospitalization needs for your patients. Besides the severity, we need to be aware of the clinical course of dengue. And so after the patient is bitten by the mosquito, the incubation period of dengue is usually short. It's only three to six, seven days, but it can be as long as 14 days. Sorry. And so in the in symptomatic patients, the typical clinical course of dengue has three phases. It starts with the febrile phase, that is when the patient presents with the classical uh, signs and symptoms of dengue, and the fever lasts for about two to seven days. During the febrile phase, the most common clinical problems include dehydration and febrile seizures in um, young children. Uh, and the onset of fever is usually very abrupt, and the patients can present very high fever, and at the beginning of the disease, a marked flushing of the face, the neck, and the chest. During the same phase, but around days two to six, and this uh, picture will be familiar to you now that you saw Dr. Wu's presentation, the patients can present with a maculopopular rash, that usually starts in the trunk and goes to the face and the limbs, and it can be blanchable and maybe scaly too. Then the fervescence occurs, and that is the decrease of the temperature of the patient below 38 centigrade, usually after day three to day eight, day eight. So fever two to seven days, then the fervescence on day three to day eight. After the, the febrile phase, after all of this happens, that it happened with our case, most patients will start to improve but some of them will enter to what we know as the critical phase that lasts one to two days, and it's characterized by an increase, by an increase in the capillary permeability. And this is where we see plasma leakage in our patients. Most of the um, warning signs present at the beginning of the critical phase, and the progression to severe disease also happens during this phase usually. And then the last phase of dengue is a convalescent phase that last three to five days can last as long as two weeks, or sometimes even more. And in this phase is where all that um, plasma that was um, extra vasated will need to be reabsorbed, reabsorbed in a gradual manner. 
In this phase, sometimes we see hypervolemia and pulmonary edema in some patients who received a lot of IV fluids during the previous phases. And the uh, characteristic rash of Tenge that is known as islands of white in a sea of red, that is commonly seen in lower limbs, can be very pruritic and appears in the convalescent phase. Sometimes we have patients that do not come to see us during the febrile or the critical phase um, because this, the symptoms were not that um, important, but they come during the convalescent phase because uh, the rash is very pruritic, very uncomfortable, and that is actually the symptom that makes them come to see us for, um, for Tenge. Um, there. The presentation of dengue can change quickly, and it's very important that everybody, clinicians, patients, and caregivers are aware um, of the warning signs and are, be, and are able to recognize them so that they can return quickly. Plasma leakage and the progression to severe uh, dengue usually happens in the critical phase, as I just mentioned. Some patients are still febrile when they progress to the critical phase, so there are other things that can help you determine that your patient is entering the critical phase, and that includes the warning signs, hemoconcentration, and fluid accumulation like pleural effusion. Hypovolemic shock is the main manifestation of severe dengue. Not all dengue patients with severe disease um, have bleeding manifestations, and this is a very important concept to remember. Only about one-third of our patients would present with um, uh, bleeding manifestations, and the majority of them will be minor bleeding manifestations. So it's very important that we remember to recognize early signs of shock in dengue patients that include narrow impulse pressure, 20 or less, tachycardia without fever, especially in children. Children, this is very important, and a delayed capillary refill so that we can recognize dengue early and start treatment with IV fluids early. There are some conditions associated to increase risk for uh, severe dengue. Obesity, asthma, diabetes, hypertension, and other uh, chronic diseases are listed here as well as pregnancy and patients in the extremes of life. A second infection with dengue is also a very well-known risk factor for severe disease, but it's important that we remember that dengue can progress to severe disease with any infection. It doesn't matter which number. And in clinical practice, it's difficult for us to determine which infection is this one. Remember, dengue can be asymptomatic, can, can be very mild. So we usually don't know which infection is the uh, infection the patient has, and we should treat every dengue infection as with potential to progress to severe disease. Most likely, we won't be able to confirm the diagnosis during the patient's febrile or critical phase, and the management should be based in the clinical evaluation and our clinical suspicion always. As Dr. Drensek mentioned, it is a nationally notifiable disease, so you should contact your local health department to let them know that you're suspecting dengue, and they can help you determine if testing is needed, which type of testing, and when um, the testing should be done. Um, um, during the first seven days of disease, we try to find the virus with RT-PCR or NS1, uh, non-structural pro protein one. Um, and after day seven, we can also test with IgM, which uh, is antibodies against the virus. During the first week of disease, the IgM can be negative, as I think was in, in this um, patient, because we don't have 
enough antibodies yet for a positive uh, test, uh, but a negative dengue IgM in the first week of disease doesn't rule out dengue. Um, sometimes we see that, that with a negative dengue IgM, it's it's not dengue, and then the patient is not tested again. So it's important to, um, if you have questions, contact your local health department. They can um, help you figure out what is the best way to test and confirm disease in your patient. During the first encounter with any suspected dengue patient, we should obtain a complete blood cell count uh, to have a baseline of certain values that are important for monitoring. During the febrile phase, patients can have normal lab results, and that doesn't rule out dengue. Uh, but um, then at the end of the febrile phase and the beginning of the critical phase, some common laboratory findings include leukopenia, hemoconcentration, and thrombocytopenia. I want to mention here that it's very important that a low, uh, a normal uh, platelet count doesn't rule out dengue either. We many times see dengue patients with normal platelets. We see dengue patients with severe dengue and normal platelet counts. So the platelet count, uh, we follow it, we monitor it, is important, but it, it doesn't rule out and it's not a diagnostic uh, test for, for dengue. The platelets can, uh, when they when the patient has thrombocytopenia, they can go or stay low for um, several days, sometimes a couple of weeks. So many times we, we have dengue patients in the convalescent phase with still thrombocytopenia and they go home after hospitalization with low platelet counts um, too, because they take a little bit to recover. Supportive management continues to be the standard of care in dengue. There are no antivirals and there are no curative treatments available for dengue. We do have a pocket guide available with uh, recommendations for clinical management. It is currently under review. I put the link there in the presentation. We are reviewing it. We are um, modifying a couple of things and uh, it will be available uh, very soon with, a, with an updated and better version, we hope. It, it will guide you with algorithms through the different uh, ways to treat uh, dengue patients. And there are also some um, Pan-American Health Organization algorithms that we use that are very helpful. The dengue clinical management treatment is divided by groups. We'll see a little bit more about that. But we have group A, B1, B2, and C. And according to that classification that we do, we then um, have the clinical uh, management recommended, most uh, importantly, with IV fluids. Most of our patients will be assigned to group A, which is the outpatient category. These are patients who do not have warning signs, who tolerate oral fluids, and who have a neural urine output. Ideally, as it was done in this case, um, yeah, the patients should be assessed daily with um, with uh, a daily uh, CVC and hematocrit until out of the critical phase. There is a typo there. Until they are out of the critical phase. Out of the critical phase means at least two days after the fever is gone, after the defervescence. And in these patients, we should be very clear on what is, um, what are the warning signs so that they are able to recognize them and come back quickly if they present them. We should look for them while we assess our patient every day and um, um, for signs of dehydration and uh, uh, defervescence to be able to know in which phase of the disease the patient is. We should um, um, recommend the patient to avoid mosquito bites. 
in endemic countries, this is done with bed nets. I don't think bed nets are very common in the US, but uh, other uh, type of prevention of mosquito bites, like use of repellent among uh, patients and caregivers and family members is important to make as a recommendation. Bed rest, patients can have low platelets and we do not want any trauma in these patients. Um, uh, the fever is managed with paracetamol and then oral fluids. I want to mention here and emphasize that the intake or an, or an abundant intake of oral fluids among dengue patients has been associated with lower rates of hospitalization. This especially in children. So it's very important to recommend to parents, caregivers, and any dengue patient really to um, have an abundant intake of oral fluids. We can avoid hospitalizations if we hydrate our patients um, orally. Patients with any warning sign that I um, hope you already know them um, and certain coexisting conditions like pregnancy, um, renal disease and coagulopathy should be treated as inpatients. The current recommendations say that it is okay to individualize the decision of hospitalizing other patients with other conditions, all the ones I listed as um, risk factors, included those in the extremes of lives, infants and elderly patients, uh, and also those with uh, some important social circumstances, the one that can come back really quickly if they present with warning signs, for example. And then all our patients with severe dengue should be hospitalized and ideally being in, be um, managed in an ICU setting. This includes patients with compensated and decompensated shock, not just the uh, hypotensive patients, but also patients in the initial stages of, of shock should be in the hospital and ideally in an ICU. Couple of comments about IV fluids management in dengue patients. Most dengue patients won't need IV fluids during the fetal phase. If, if the patient can drink, we should offer oral fluids, even if they are in the hospital. We many times have, for, for example, pregnant women, the recommendation is to hosp always hospitalize them, but um, if they are not dehydrated, they can tolerate oral fluids and they are stable. We hospitalize them, but we treat them with oral fluids. Um, the, oral, the IV fluids are needed usually for just during the um, critical phase, and that phase lasts one to two days. So that's usually what we need to give to our dengue patients. We only use isotonic solutions in dengue, even for maintenance IV fluids. And uh, the main concept is that we give the minimum IV fluids that are required to restore IV volume, to maintain good perfusion, and to maintain a good uh, urine output. So that's why we initiate IV fluids. We reassess frequently our patient very frequently. This is one of the reasons why dengue outbreaks um, um, have such, a, such an effect in um, health systems in endemic areas because the need of reassessing and um, uh, monitoring the patient very constantly. This is, this is all uh, the IV fluid management is usually an, done in a stepwise manner, both to increase IV fluids and to decrease IV fluids. I won't go in detail into that. The algorithms and the pocket guy will tell you exactly the, the amount of IV fluids that you need to, to use. But the main idea is that it should always be done in a stepwise manner to decrease and to increase. And we use uh, ideal body weight to calculate our IV fluids in our dengue patients. We do not use NSAIDs as it was um, done in our case or give them IM injections. Nothing that is uh, trauma should be done. And we do not use corticosteroids or prophylactic 
platelet transfusions. So you're not recommended. Both of them have not demonstrated or there is a lack of, ed of evidence on their benefit uh, on dengue patients. So we do not recommend them currently. There are a couple of dengue vaccines, and I want to make a couple of uh, comments about that. Denvaxia has been recommended for children 9 to 16 years old who lived in an endemic area like Puerto Rico, where there is a campaign going on, and who have a lab confirmation of a previous dengue infection. Um, Puerto Rico is right now the only place in the U.S. where Denvaxia is offered and recommended by the USACIP. And then the other vaccine is called Qdenga, and it was recommended by the uh, World Health Organization for children 6 to 16 years old in uh, specific settings with a high burden and a high transmission um, level of dengue. It has been authorized and uh, approved in several countries, but the FDA application was um, withdrawn in the U.S., so right now there are not dengue vaccines recommended for travelers in, in the U.S. So the main um, takeaways, most dengue cases are travel associated and we are expecting that to continue increasing. We should suspect dengue in all our feral travelers who come from a endemic area within the last 14 days. We do not have any treatment or any vaccine available right now. We should contact the local health department or the state health department for notification and confirmatory testing. If you suspect dengue, you should always treat your patient as dengue until um, uh, you're sure it's not dengue. So determine the phase of the disease is very important, which phase is it so that you don't miss the critical phase, the severity of the disease so that you can determine if the patient should be in the hospital or not, assess comorbidities and other risk factors that uh, are important for the progression to severe disease. And with that information, you determine the clinical management requirements and the hospitalization requirements in your patient based on the uh, group classification. The main and uh, final comment, remember that the main severe dengue presentation is shock, not bleeding. Even if we hear a lot about dengue hemorrhagic fever, it's very important to remember that dengue patients usually die from shock. Um, and it's what we need to uh, pay attention the most. Here's the information for the CDC dengue branch um, for contacting us. If you have any question, any patient that you want to discuss, any situation with a dengue patient, we're always very happy to hear from you and um, to either put you in contact with the health department or work with them and or uh, to help you in any way we can. So I think with that, there are some references uh, for you here, but that's that's what I have for you today. Thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. Sanchez-Gonzalez, for that excellent presentation. I will give you a few minutes to catch your breath. Uh, we do have time for, for a few questions here. And um, I just wanted to let the audience know that we will be posting resources to this session, which will contain specific guidance documents and algorithms that Dr. Sanchez-Gonzalez had referenced and mentioned during her talk. Uh, and those will be made available to everyone here when the podcast is made for this session next week. Uh, and with that, let me just launch into my first question. I'm actually going to bring uh, Dr. Wu back on here. And one of the questions has to do with, um, have we seen co-infections of arboviruses? Have you seen them at your clinic uh, with returning travelers? Oh, uh, great question. Um, in, in our practice, I've, I've yet to personally confirm that, but I know it has been reported in the literature. Uh, I'm sure Dr. Sanchez-Gonzalez can, can, um, can confirm that or uh, you said more light on that, but co-infections, if I recall, are 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 known. I think a lot of the issues are we don't test for everything, 
um, you know, often we stop when we get a confirmation, um, you know, and as you know, uh, uh, at, at Zika, routine Zika testing is no longer, uh, you know, advised in the U.S. So certainly, you know, there could be cases that we just aren't are picking up. Uh, but uh, but my, my understanding is that that has uh, been documented. Dr. Sanchez-Gonzalez, your thoughts? I think there have been a couple of documented cases of co-infection of dengue and chikungunya, but it's very rare. Um, it's very uncommon. The Puerto Rico Department of Health, they do surveillance for all arboviruses, dengue, Zika, chikungunya, and we, we really don't, don't see that a lot. Uh, we see co-infection of dengue with flu sometimes, again, not very common, but co-infection with dengue with other respiratory viruses is possible, but uh, with uh, the same, uh, the same uh, with arboviruses, not that much. It has to do a little bit with the capacity of the vector to transmit different viruses at the same time and on other factors. But yeah, it's very uncommon, uh, not our main concern. Understood. Great. Dr. Drenzek, a question for you. Um, you know, with all the surveillance that the, the Georgia Department of Public Health performs with um, viruses such as dengue and diseases such as dengue, are there any points where the DPH would get concerned, say, or would think about quarantine, quarantining people? Or, uh, and I'll get Dr. Sanchez-Gonzalez's uh, thoughts on this as well. Are there any thoughts of if, you know, numbers were to reach a certain point where there'd be travel bans uh, imposed in certain specific regions, depending on it. So let's start with you, Dr. Drenzik, from a, um, you know, local perspective. Sure. Um, yeah. And, you know, certainly we think about those type of interventions as, um, you know, a, as being something that, that um, you know, would match, you know, certainly the magnitude and scope of, of the situation, which I hope could not would never be that way. You know, I was thinking about, and and maybe Dr. Sanchez Gonzalez can can talk a little bit more about this. Um, for example, in Florida, that has much more experience with, um, you know, sort of dealing with um, local transmission of uh, of dengue, even, you know, in the context of outbreaks, for example, the Key West outbreak that occurred in 2020 during the pandemic when there were a lot of cases. Um, and again, I don't think at that, even in, in, in um, you know, even in that situation, you know, certainly I don't think that they applied, you know, sort of formal, you know, sort of quarantine but I think that, you know, it's a, it's a balance. It's just like anything else, you know, we have to balance, um, uh, potential for ongoing transmission or ongoing spread, you know, whether it's from people to mosquitoes, uh, rather than the usual communicable way we deal with these things, you know, with, um, with, with magnitude, with scope, with context, with landscape of what's going on. Um, and hopefully something like that is something that, uh, doesn't happen very frequently and only in, you know, kind of very, very worst case scenario type of things, you know, so we try to balance that. So, Uh, thank you. Great. Dr. Sanchez-Gonzalez, your thoughts? Yeah, I just want to mention that we, we do not recommend, um, CDC currently doesn't recommend to suspend or to avoid travel to areas with dengue, endemic areas of dengue or even dengue outbreaks. Our recommendation is to use preventive measures for mosquito bites to implement them and maintain them through the travel and then maintain them when the patients are back as Dr. Uh, Drensek said they have the potential to introducing the virus back uh, to to the community it's it's a very important uh, one so we recommend that 
patients or return travelers keep uh, prevention mosquito bites um, actions um, 21 days after they arrived in, in the US um, to be protected or to protect others during that time. But we, we do not recommend quarantine or avoiding travel to endemic areas. Fantastic. <clears throat> really what you're referencing is the hierarchy of controls, I think, um, you know, in our disaster preparedness uh, world. So, so thank you for that too. Um, question for you and, and really for the group, do you think we are at risk of dengue becoming endemic to the United States, at least to the mainland? I'll start with you, Dr. Sanchez-Gonzalez. I know it's a loaded question. I'm sure you get asked a lot. Yeah, that's a, that's a <laughs> difficult one. Um, uh, of course, we, we have the vector and we see we are seeing more locally acquired dengue cases for sure. Uh, but what we think there are several factors that are protective in the in the US for for becoming an endemic area. I don't have a, a, a number or a specific, mm -hmm. um, um, you know, how how specific I can be to to the risk of becoming an endemic area, but there are protection factors. Uh, we have AC and screens and uh, uh, many other uh, protective um, behaviors that help that the, the transmission cycle stops. Uh, we do have, um, in general, resources to respond to those locally acquired cases, and they are uh, usually identified, and there is a lot of public health actions going around. Um, and we also have um, the weather in our favor in some of those areas. The mosquito doesn't survive in the winter, at least not now. So we, we also have that help to stop transmission during, during the winter periods. The eggs survive. Uh, so they come back, but uh, but we have several protective factors. Um, for sure, we're seeing more locally acquired cases, but um, I, I I don't know how likely it is that it will become endemic. Well, we have to keep Dr. Wu uh, in the job here. So, you know, in some sense, uh, we should be on the lookout for, for additional cases as they arise too. Um, Unfortunately, we are going to have to stop there as our time is uh, short, but I do want to say thank you so much to our uh, fantastic presenters. Before we close, I would again like to just pose an interactive question to the audience after participating in this session. How comfortable do you now feel about the current state of dengue fever and approaches to preparedness in the Western Hemisphere on a scale of not at all comfortable to extremely comfortable? If you could please vote now. All right, and if we could have the results up on the screen, please. It looks like we have made some significant inroads, so I want to applaud our uh, panelists for their fantastic presentations and uh, answering of questions. And I also want to applaud our audience for sticking us, sticking with us um, through to the end and asking some fantastic questions. So thank you again to everyone. Thank you to our technical team here at the SCDP Echo, Yasmin Thornton, our project Echo extraordinaire and leader. Our planning committee with Sharon Venera, Delanish Mehta, Allison Claybar, thank you very much. For feedback and further information, including continuing education credits and the recording, please check the links here and on our website. We look forward to seeing you again next month on the 14th of December. Thank you very much. Thank you.